Today's episode of Socially Democratic is brought to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. And in 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at Street. Dot com dot au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're going back overseas again. Today we're joined by our regular Democratic campaign correspondent, Sam Schneidman, to talk about the Democratic National Convention that happened this week on zoom basically um so sam's coming on today to just talk about all of the things that happened in the space of an hour um it is literally more we our aim is to be as if not more biased in our coverage of the convention than uh msnbc so uh look out for that uh don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app including apple podcasts spotify and stitcher and we're going to be on amazon prime in a couple of weeks time as well so look out for that um and if you are on apple podcasts please give us a, a rating and a review if you're listening to us right now and you haven't done that before and you've got an apple podcast um app just look at your phone and just type away you can do it right now just go hey did i like this podcast it's okay here's three stars why not take it all up to five that would be good too and don't forget for regular updates on the podcast, you can follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one uh, late on a Friday evening. Uh, but it's early a.m. in the great state of Massachusetts and uh, with only 74 days until Election Day in the United States, uh, the Democratic National Convention came to a close uh, this morning, Melbourne time, last night's uh, U.S. time with uh, former Vice President Joseph Biden accepting his party's nomination to be the presidential candidate for the Democratic Party in the uh, November election and joining him on that ticket is the daughter of an Indian American and, uh, and Jamaican uh, parents, the senator from California, Kamala Harris, and to help us unpack this historic moment in US politics. I'm joined by our regular US political campaign correspondent, uh, former Obama for America organizer, Sam Schneidman. Are you fired up and ready to go? Well, um, it's before 9 a.m. here on a Friday morning, so not yet, but I will be. I will be. Good. My adrenaline is, sl- even though it's 10.30 at night, my adrenaline is a little bit amped at the moment. I'm currently chewing my way through. because you're talking to me. Yeah, well, that's that, that, that true. That is true. Um, but also, I'm currently watching Stranger Things um, for the first time. I'm in season two, episode seven. I'm not good with scary TV content at the best of times. And a lot of people give me shit when they find out that I am, I literally brick it through every episode and they go strange things it's not that scary uh, i'm it's intense and i this last one i'm i just i walked upstairs shitting myself in case some sort of demigorgon was going to come and rip my head off <laughs> anyway so notwithstanding that 
Um, let's talk about let's talk about politics and get my mind off of what just happened in the last hour downstairs on my television. Um, <laughs> the uh, the we're going to talk about the Democratic National Convention that happened over the last four days uh, on uh, on in in the virtual world. Um, but before we do do that, for those uh, who are not familiar with political conventions in the United States, just give the listener out there a bit of an understanding of the central goal or purpose of these political conventions. Absolutely. So uh, in the United States, conventions um, serve the purpose of formally nominating candidates. Uh, so when you win votes, uh, you're actually amassing uh, – when you win votes in primaries and caucuses, you're actually amassing delegates within the party who are pledged to you based on your uh, share of the vote in these primaries and caucuses. And then they they pledge to vote for you at the convention when you're nominated. So the whole purpose of these conventions is to formally nominate candidates or president and vice president. And then they carry the additional purpose of introducing the candidates to voters, creating a clear message about why they're running, uh, and importantly, why you know people who are t- tuning in should vote for them. And they sort of help to define the party and the party's message. Uh, they used to be uh, more dynamic events with wheeling and dealing. Um, if you look into the history of these things, they're, they're pretty interesting. Uh, there used to be battles on the convention floor over nominees and running mates. So uh, that means party uh, apparatchiks and activists would, would wrangle over you know, nominees. And sometimes they'd have to go to multiple rounds of voting for the pledged delegates before they settle on a a nominee. And then there's wrangling over the party's platform, which is basically the party's stance on issues. So in pre-COVID times, there's a whole community set up around the convention. There's party events, there's media tents, full hotels. Imagine entire cities taken over. Um, It's really a wonderful spectacle of democracy. But the hope of every candidate walking out of the convention is to have their nominee, uh, their nomination gone smoothly. So avoiding some of the the dramatics that I uh, was alluding to um, spilling out into public and then having clarity around their story and their message. So from that standpoint, I think uh, Joe Biden uh, and the Democrats can be very happy with how this event unfolded. And we are, as you uh, mentioned in your um your remarks there. We are in a uh, this COVID time, so therefore the this convention had to take on a completely different uh, tone, and it was due to be held in uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, Milwaukee, Milwaukee battleground uh, state that the uh, the Democrats lost in the presidential election four years ago, and that's why they set up their. Uh, the convention to be held in this important battleground uh, state and city, but obviously that didn't eventuate because of the um, the pandemic and the restrictions that are in place across the country. So the Democrats obviously had to make a big decision about how they would conduct this convention um, and ensure that uh, um, they could do it without having people come and attend and all the issues that come around with, with crowds and, and, and the like. We're going to, unpack the convention now but before we sort of go through the 
the the the cut and thrust of it and the, the highs and the lows and the takeouts. Broadly speaking, as the Democratic Party uh, shifted this convention to this sort of virtual format, um, what what were your thoughts on it? Largely, did they did did they land it? Did they did they pull it off? Yeah. So in short, I think they did. Um, the convention felt very 2020 to me uh, and and pretty appropriate for the moment we're going through. So like many uh, customs we've adapted in this COVID world, uh, this felt definitely a little weird at first and was charmingly awkward the whole way through. (laughs) But overall, I think it was successful and did a great job at introducing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and their vision for America. Um, So I guess I would just describe it as a moment that met its medium. So if you look at the last several conventions of both parties, they've sort of struggled to keep up with the television consumption habits uh, of, of the viewing public and have been swimming against the tide to maintain relevance. So the reason why this virtual convention was so good is because it felt less like purely a party exercise and more like a telethon about who we are as a country. And it's a really important distinction. Uh, the diversity of America was on full display. The big tent nature of the Democratic Party came through clearly in a way that I think would have been muted had it been a, a traditionally stodgy event in an arena. Yeah, it was. Intri- I, I was intrigued how they were going to create this level of enthusiasm for the candidates, for the party, for the policy, and for the people in an empty room. Um, a, a huge challenge to do, and in some ways, I think it actually was good that it was an empty room. Yeah. So I think what they did is they also reframed the the expectations about who this convention is for ultimately, right? You still have, uh, you know, you still need to go through the formality of nominating, uh, you know, candidates. Uh, You still need to go through the important exercise of introducing candidates uh, and articulating their vision and, and stating who you are as a party. But typically these events have come across in a way that uh, they are um, for really active partisan Democrats, right? The speeches are geared towards them. The event is geared towards them. And that leaves out sort of, um, you know, the wide swath of voters out there who don't consider themselves partisans. Um, And so I think that this convention was really good at communicating with average voters, with wide cross-section of America about what this moment is all about and why we need Joe Biden to be president. Uh, two questions I'm actually going to ask you here. Uh, one, historically, say in the last sort of two or three uh, presidential election cycles, how many, how many undecided or independent voters would be tuning into a convention how many i mean i know you don't have the stats here but sort of uh, you know anecdotally sp- speaking to you know family and friends and whatnot do you how many do you think would do, do you think there was a greater interest around this particular convention because of the unique nature of it uh, and two when do the networks start to actually show televise the convention because it, there's 
stuff goes on throughout the day, right? And then traditionally stuff goes on throughout the day. A lot of the policy debates and all that kind of stuff yeah. happens throughout the day. And then yeah, in the yeah. evening they put on the keynote speakers. How did the networks in the United States carry the convention uh, this week? Well, so um, my uh, consumption of the uh, convention started later in the evening. So around like eight o'clock Eastern time and would be when we first begin to tune in and have it on in the background and, um, you know, be generally aware of what's going on and then really sort of honed in on it for the like the last hour where we were watching it attentively. The uh, convention would go, you know, just past 11 p.m. every night, typically on on cable news channels. So that is how it went this time. Uh, Going back to what I said earlier about how these conventions are really uh, have been sort of fighting the tide to maintain relevance. In the past, uh, there would be, you know, a large media presence at these events at these conventions, but there would be less, I think, um, broad-based attention to the overall event outside of you know the, the partisans that they were traditionally geared for. And uh, this was a dynamic that also changed this time. Like you said, because of the unique nature, but also because there's less for people to do now. So, you know, it's a bit more top of top of mind. Um, and then I think one thing that really came through is that again, it was less, less about sort of the party speaking to itself and more about the people in the party talking to their fellow citizens about why they should vote for the party this November. And, uh, the, the average, I don't want to say average Americans, but the, the, the non-political people, the not, the non politicians who had speaking roles uh in the convention really helped it sort of to break through in a way that would have been lost had um it maintained its sort of traditional format well let's um let's talk about some of the the key highlights of the of the um of the convention um shall we um what what i'm going to do here is i'm actually going to pick out some of the things that are probably less focusing on the the big main ones which was uh the speeches from um, President Obama, uh, Michelle Obama, Kamala Harris, uh, Joe Biden. We'll get to those in a moment, but just some of the stuff that happened around the outside. That, I, that here are my here are my uh, here are my list of moments within the convention that I think landed. And I want to, if you've got any thoughts on those ones, jump in. If you've got other thoughts about what you think landed, um, you know, let's let's go with that. And then we can look at the things that I, that, that I thought, yeah. You know, they didn't exactly uh, pull that off. The first one, I actually thought the MCs that um, that they had for each night, they had four uh, different MCs for each night, Eva Longoria, Tracy, Alice Ross, uh, Kerry Washington and uh, Jul- Julia uh, Louis-Dreyfus, um, who we all know from um, as Selena Myers from Veep or uh, Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld, from those of us that are a little bit older. Um, I thought they did an excellent job. Um, because it's not easy having to constantly sort of talk to camera, spin around, throw to a screen that you probably can't see or just get the timing right and get the tone right. I thought they were very, very good. I noticed that Alex Wagner from The Circus, who I uh, I um, I enjoy her writing as a journalist, she was very critical of uh, uh, Louis Dreyfus today. She thought that she her comic tone was wrong for the moment. 
Um, but I thought she was brilliant. She had that sort of mix of, you know, Veep and Elaine all rolled into one. Yeah. And making fun of the fact that, you know, President Trump's a dickhead. You know, like it, it, dickhead, mate. Yeah, that's yeah. Still haven't lost that really shit Aussie accent. That's good. But do you know yeah. what I mean? Like it just, her tone was bang on. Like someone needed to take the piss out of this guy, and, and she did. Yeah, I thought I thought it was good. Uh, you know, people are gonna have whack opinions out there, and they're gonna throw them out there. So, um, but what, whatever. I, I thought it was, um, I thought it was great. Um, the just the idea of having hosts like this who rotate every night made for a pleasurable viewing experience, but I think also made um, strategic sense politically. One struggle that conventions in the past have had is getting people who are not partisans to engage with the event, as I've said. Um, So these celebrities are definitely well-known and broadly well-liked. Uh, and that means they can bring people into the process who might have been on the outside or or not in it at all. And they can motiv- motivate them to vote, hopefully, and, and stay engaged in the process th- until Election Day. So mm-hmm. I thought it was a good move. Beyond that, I really liked the variety of the hosts, too, um, and thought that that was, uh, that was really great. So I hope the I hope the Oscars took note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the The roll call, uh, the traditional roll call of states and territories to cast the, where the pledge delegates from those states cast their votes for their presidential candidates. Um, you know, traditionally it's done from a conference floor or convention floor. Sorry, um, but this time, obviously, because there wasn't a convention floor, it was all pre recorded. Um, and what it created over the course of the however long, I don't know how long it took to do this, but to you know go from the the uh, the Edmund Pettit's Bridge in Alabama to sort of a Native American leader standing uh, in front of or on Standing Rock in the Dakotas, um, you know, a delegate on her farm in Nebraska with his cow just standing behind her, um, you know, these auto workers in Michigan, uh, you know, standing in front of cars parked on their front lawns. It was just this. It was a. Uh, it showcased the diversity of not just the Democratic Party but also the the, the diversity of the United States. Um, but it also gave folks an opportunity to talk about what was at stake in their community or in their in their st- state, which I thought was a, an absolute highlight and a very very clever way of taking what is normally a rudimentary, boring kind of part of the convention and turning it into a highlighter. What, what was your thoughts? Yeah, I think that was definitely a highlight, and um, you know, it's something that could have only come through in this sort of uh, Zoom fention format. Sorry for the term, but I think that that's it's a good one. Uh, <laughs> and it carried um, significant uh, personal resonance that I think would have been lost otherwise. Yeah, I just my only criticism was the um, the state representative from Massachusetts really missed out on a chance of not delivering their delegate votes from a Dunkin' Donuts in Watertown. They did miss out on that. But, like if, uh, you, if you can think of anything more iconic than that in Boston, then you know, apart from Fenway Park. And the garden, there's, you know, nothing more. Well, there's also like, you know, the the state is is full of landmarks um, for everything from Plymouth Rock, you know, to maybe even the more 2020 uh, appropriate Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, The bridge at Chappaquiddick, that kind of stuff. I I take your point. Um, The, uh, 
the the other thing that I thought um, was great was because there was a lack of audience, which normally would be a downside, it actually enabled everyone at home to hear the speakers and not um, have to deliver a speech with 500 breaks in the speech whilst they receive a standing ovation or an applause. Oh, my God. It actually so, felt – This is so important. It was just so much more intimate. It felt like that they were talking directly to you, and they were. Yeah. They, were they were looking straight down the yeah. barrel of the camera. This was another unforeseen bonus of the convention uh, format. So I think it really came out most clearly in President Obama's speech. If you notice, uh, the camera moves in ever so slowly to to zoom in just on his face and chest to sort of drive home the gravity of the moment. Mm -hmm. And it was a really dramatic setting for a dramatic speech that made for a really poignant viewing experience and really helped the the point of his speech comes through um, with, with added heft. Now, the other aspect of this is that it sort of reframed who the conventions are supposed to be for, right? The dynamic you bring up with the whooping and hollering, you know, after each speech uh, makes them feel like, you know, they're for Democrats and the very politically active ones at that. So this allowed it to be much more personal, as you say, um, about you know average voters in addition to Democrats. Um, so that that was, uh, I think, definitely the biggest win, and is something that I think we should expect in conventions of the future. Uh, the last one from me before I um, throw it to you: uh, the video clips um, that uh, broke up and connected all the various speeches throughout the four days, did a very good job at framing uh, the issues through pictures and and words and, and footage and the stories of real Americans and almost nested in that kind of Marshall Gantz public narrative, you know, the story of self, us and now. And it's something that as an organiser that I know that is important to you and is important to me and certainly important to a lot of the organisers that do listen to this podcast, but it's something that we in Australian politics fail at miserably to get our leaders and to get our, first of all, to get our leaders to talk about public narrative to talk about their story of self, not a CV, but moments in their life that led them to answer a call to leadership. The stories of us, the things that unite us, that make us stronger, particularly in an election where it really is a, a contrast between fear and hope. Uh, and then the story of now, the urgent challenges before us and the things that we need to do to make change. Um, but also to do that through the voices of real Americans. Another thing that we struggle a lot in Australian politics is to push aside the politicians every now and then and let real Australians get up there and actually say, you know, what's at stake for their country. Those videos were remarkable. And if you ever, if you are a, a political um, uh, professional, you should get a copy of a bunch of those and just use that and show that to some of you. This is for the Australian audience. Show that to some of your your candidates because they were they were very, very good and it really yeah. brought together the whole con- convention for me. I, I agree. And two in particular stood out to me. Uh, the first was last night. Uh, well, Joe Biden is famous for having had a stutter as a kid and it's something that he still deals with throughout his life. And last night there was a video of a kid who stutters uh, and it's really, it's really shocking when you, when you hear it because you're not used to hearing a stutter from someone on TV or like social media, right? Like it's, it's a, it's, you maybe encounter it in real life, but it's, it's not something that, that is encountered sort of like televisually mm. ever. 
And his story was really powerful because he said that I met Joe Biden when I was a kid and he helped, he told me we're part of the same club and he helped me feel more confident about something that I've been struggling with my whole life. Uh, and the kid like persevered through this little segment and it was so humanizing not for just Joe Biden, but for the way that like this young kid can connect with this old powerful politician who's been in the limelight for so long in a way that was deeply empathetic. Um, it was, it was a remarkable, um, segment and it was, uh, it was just really, um, it leaves the heart full after watching it. The second one that really stood out to me, um, I think was on the first or second night. can't remember now, but it was, um, the daughter of a man who died from coronavirus in Arizona. And she talked about his death in a way that really connected it with the political moment. She obviously talked about the trauma of losing her dad and what that feels like. But she also really brought the point home that his death is inseparable from Donald Trump's presidency because he believed his leaders. He didn't just believe Donald Trump, this guy. He believed his governor when they said, go out, you can go to bars, it's safe. He believed you know, that the, the state of Arizona was, was open for business. And he's like, you know, we're open for business. I'm going to go out. He sang karaoke, came back, came down with coronavirus right after that and passed away like a week later. He died alone mm. and he shouldn't have ever died alone. And I thought that what this video really underscored wasn't so much Donald Trump's failure as a president to contain this pandemic, though it did do that. It also repudiated the central organizing principle of the Republican Party these days which is to undermine government, to sow distrust into government, to maintain power for a small group of people with the principal purpose of increasing wealth for that small group of people. And so for me, that video was, um, was really dramatic and poignant. Um, and just to play uh, Democratic Convention Bingo, we obviously had to kick it off with a uh, Bruce Springsteen uh, clip um, with, uh, you know, Rust Belt, uh, <laughs> you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania kind of stuff, which was, you know, we all love that. Uh, what, I just wanted to mention that, What anything else for you personally that stood out that we have not covered before we jump into the things that didn't? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the stuff that stood out for me is I think what stood out for for most people. The Obama's speeches were were significant. I loved those. Um, the the highlighting of like sort of real people, average voter, average voters, citizens who aren't sort of like part of the Democratic Party um, apparatus, I thought was great. For me, two things in particular really stood out. Number one, it was such a good showcase of America's rich diversity. Uh, and it did a good job of, of showing how that diversity is a core strength of our nation and is inseparable from who we are. So that was really wonderful to see. The other thing is that 
Oh, I, I might just add that that diversity that we saw was a great contrast to what you it's an implicit contrast to what you know is coming next week from the Republican convention. And the second thing that stood out for me was just the production value of the event. It went really well as well as you could have hoped. And, you know, I think it, I I'm glad, you know, after thinking about it, I'm glad that it sort of retained this charming awkwardness throughout the whole thing, because, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be what it, it wouldn't be human sort of if it didn't have that. Yeah. Um, we're going to come back to the Obamas in a moment, so uh, folks at home, don't uh, don't worry. We're um, we're not burying the lead, but we're just saving the best to last. Um, here's the things that didn't land, and these may be controversial, but I'm just going to run through them. Historian John Meacham, boring. Why? I, do we, I disagree. Why do we need his? Why do we need a historian to come on and tell us about like this? Was actually a great moment having watched after having watched it because it really just draws a sharp, sharp contrast with Trump's. Uh, inability to meet the moment. So John Meacham is a great public voice who really understands the office of the American presidency and is good at conveying its gravity to Americans in a way that's broadly approachable. The economy gets lots of airtime. And I think uh, he was a good addition because lots of people respect and listen to what he has to say. So it was it was good. I'm gonna I'll I'll I'll, I'll pass that one on to you then, since uh, you we are. We might agree to disagree. Yeah. On that. Well, I just it just it just looked elitist, and it looked like uh, and you know, no disrespect to academics, but like just piss off. Like you don't have any place. In well, this. yeah, but like he's someone who's widely respected in the United States, and he's yeah, widely but- respected as as a biographer of the presidency. Uh, and as a as a public commentator, and so I think that 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 is really why why it resonated for me. Uh, the Bidens and the the, ha- the Harrises having to do this awkward post speech waving and pointing at a television screen of uh, Democratic supporters and looking it just looked weird. And the exchanging as they walked across the stage and they passed each other, but they couldn't get too close, but they kind of wanted to. It was just this awkward dance. Yeah. It was like me at the high school ball in year, year seven. Like it was, it just looked stupid. I, I, don't, well, I, don't, I, I, I don't know what else you, I don't know what else you could do. I literally don't know what else you could do. Like, okay, you finished your well, speech. When I, when I, what when you I talked about the convention being charmingly awkward, this is exactly what I was referring to. Yeah. Oh, anyway, um, Cory Booker's interview with all the federal, sorry, with all the failed presidential candidates, which was on day four, uh, it was like loser Hollywood squares. It just looked bad. All these former presidential rivals that ran in the primary, all sitting to chat about their experiences, how Joe Biden whipped their ass. It just was like, and I understand the idea behind, apparently what I read in the Washington Post, I think was um, historically speaking, there's always some moment where all the people who ran in the primaries gets to go on stage and sort of wave at their supporters and thank them and all that kind of stuff. So there was never that opportunity to do that. So this was both supposed to replace it, but it just, it just looked shit. What was your thoughts on it? Well, I actually thought it was a great moment because it draws such a sharp contrast with Trump's punitive approach to his political rivals. So I think what it really showcased is Biden's um, capacity for leadership 
Now, if there's a criticism I have of this particular segment, it's that no one really can relate to what it's like to be in the Senate. They talk about like, you know, I was giving a, a floor speech and no one was there, but Joe Biden was and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I think that that was a bit of a miss. But, um, you know, the overarching objective of, of it being a contrast moment was achieved. Mayor Pete's story that he had for Biden in that in that moment was great when he just before they were about to walk out on the stage to one of the debates. Um, Mayor Pete said that Biden said, oh, I understand you got so and so working on your campaign. And they said, yeah, yeah, they're fantastic. And Joe Biden said, look, you know, you should know that they've gone through this challenge in their past life, yada, yada, yada. Let's look out for them. They're a great person. And Mayor Pete said, I didn't even know that about that person. But it's nice that he walked across to me and just sort of just check in. That was a nice little story. Um, Amy Klobuchar's story about Joe Biden giving her a call after she made a speech on the floor. I mean, like, whatever. He's probably looking for exactly. He was looking for some exactly. votes. He was looking for some votes or something later down the track. You know, he was working the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, it's the last like who can? Who? Yeah, the last one is um, which got a lot of attention earlier in the week when um, AOC uh, did the formal nomination for Bernie Sanders, which is a process that has to happen anyway that is not what i just that's not my problem i think that was fine i just think that they gave her a re and i'm not a, look i don't know if i completely agree with a lot of aoc's policies generally speaking but she clearly is someone who has a lot of pull amongst young voters in the country she should have had a bigger uh, role within the the four days uh, and i think they just missed an opportunity there maybe she didn't want to do it i don't know i just can't see someone getting between a politician and a camera. So I think she would want to do it. No, I think, yeah, if given the opportunity, she would definitely do it. I mean, who knows, right? There was a lot of hand-wringing over this, and there was a lot of hand-wringing over who got prominent speaking slots. Uh, but in the end, it may prove to have been sort of a shrewd move to give her this slot for this particular convention. You know, AOC is many things, um, and but one of those things is that she is a lightning rod. Absolutely, right. Everything that like she does will generate a love or hate reaction. Democrats and progressives will generally love what she does. Republicans loathe what she does and what she says, and that can sort of obfuscate or. Uh, divert away from her message. And so this helped mitigate that a, a bit, but was able to sort of use her star power in a way that was strategically meaningful. Um, and I think it just boils down to a more conservative approach on this. I think that um, you know the convention planners clearly knew that she had to be included. She's a really important voice. And I think that in a perfect world, they would have liked to have given her more time to speak uh, and to really sort of uh, give a speech that was more than in just service of Bernie Sanders's nomination. But um, I, I think that uh, they they sort of made a calculation and went with it this way. And you know, I think uh, the good news is that we're talking. You know, all of the focus has been on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the success of this convention rather than what AOC had to say. Yeah, that's true. Okay, the Obamas, starting with Michelle, thoughts on her speech? Great. Uh, you know, I think what is wonderful about that is she was particularly even-keeled and 
but serious in what she was talking about. It was also a more casual presentation than Barack's speech, right? Mm -hmm. She was sitting down, speaking directly to the camera in what seemed like, you know, maybe like a living room or or something like that. Uh, So it, it allowed her to draw that connection that she has with so many people to address the severity of this moment. Uh, and I think, you know, really, um, her speech speaks for itself. Whose audience is Michelle's speech, um, directed towards, do you think? Well, Michelle Obama is deeply popular within, around the world in the United States. And she's certainly very popular with, um, with democratic activists, but I think her voice carries a particular resonance with voters who are skeptical of politicians. And the reason why I think that is because she herself has always been skeptical of, of the political process and never has always been vocal that she never wanted to be involved in this. But here she is. And she has this great no bullshit personality, right? But she's also like really charming and lovely on this at the same time. And so that allows her to really cut through the smoke and mirrors of politics and connect with people who might be inclined to be distrustful of, of what they're, what they're being um, sold. Uh, and then her uh, husband, uh, number 44, um, I just felt like Obama had kept his mouth shut. He'd kept his own counsel about his views and opinions on the Trump presidency and Donald Trump himself for f- the better part of four years and have, having to listen to his r- racist vitriol and trying to rewrite the history of the Obama presidency. And this was kind of his moment to step out and go, right, I'm going to have one shot at the locker here and I'm just going to be very, very clear with the American people about what I think about Donald Trump to the point he even said his name, which he never does. Um, mm. How big a moment was it for a former president to accuse a sitting president of effectively cheating democracy? Well, obviously, it's historic that President Obama attacked directly, politically attacked the current president directly, right? But I think when we, you know, everyone has been sort of like focusing on that question, which I find is a largely irrelevant question because. It is less historic than the way Trump has lied about him, debased his office, and failed at being president through rampant corruption and obvious uh, ineptitude. Now, personally speaking, I thought it was an appropriate speech, and that seems to sort of be the consensus view of it. Uh, He was responding to the moment as it is and not as we want it to be. What is striking to me, though, is that he called out some plain truths that are very stark when you hear them spoken by a former president. These are, these are facts. These are facts about American life that I think everyone sort of like acknowledges, but they're dark facts. And typically, President Obama and, a for, and former presidents generally don't really call them out in such a direct way. But President Obama really was clear. 
that Donald Trump is attempting to undermine our democracy so that he can consolidate more power. The purpose of that power is to concentrate wealth to a smaller and smaller group. And all that depends on an ineffective government and relies on voter cynicism. That is like essentially his message. Mm. And it's, it's um, pretty striking, though, of course, it, all of that is true. Another interesting observation um, is that neither Michelle Obama or Barack Obama used the words President Trump. Hmm. They refer to him only as Donald Trump, which I think drives home their point that he is unfit. Yeah, there was a... Um... There was a moment there where I actually thought he was he was getting very. It, it, it seemed he was getting a little bit emotional, uh, like it was personal, and that it was at the sentences that he uttered. Do not let them take away your power. Do not yeah. let them take away your vote. And then he goes on to effectively make um, a call to the citizenry of the United States, a call to action, and it's something that he did in his farewell address. Um, when he finished up his presidency. What's happened since then? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And he's back here again and he's doing the same thing. And it's something I've always admired about Obama as a politician is it's not just highfalutin, to coin a phrase that my mum uses, uh, sort of values-driven kind of speeches. There's always an ask. Like the true community mm. organiser that he, he, he is, he's always asking people to act. Um, that was such a powerful moment in that speech um, it really hit home. And the, you were speaking earlier before when the camera zoomed in. The camera zoomed in on that bit too. Like it drove home, but it was emo- yeah. it was emotional. Um, he was reaching what, out to the citizen and saying, you need to do something here. This is actually our moment to bring about real change. Yeah, no, for sure. And then another thing that really um, stood out to me about this, or like one thing that really stood out to me in this speech was the part where he talked about Barack Obama was born on the same day that John Lewis was arrested in Selma, Mm. which was really powerful. And he brought that into the, uh, the struggle for voting rights. And he brought that into, you know, the struggle of democracy and how it's a, it's an active, it's an active um, sort of process. It's an active uh, exercise. There was one thing. That, <laughs> there was one bit that I uh, did think about you in this, in his speech when he sort of was really doing a bit of a story of us in the way that only Obama can, where he really makes his big tent and brings everyone in. He talked about um, how in in the in our past we've we've shat on the the Irish and the Italians and the. And the and the and, yeah. and the Slavs that have come to our to our country, to the Catholics and the Jews, uh, and listed uh, to the Muslims uh, and to the African Americans, the Native Americans, the Latinos. How do you feel, given that you dedicated eight years working for Obama to get him elected twice, that he left out white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? That must hurt, <laughs> Sam. That must hurt. I guess we are. Uh, it just makes us victims of of cancel culture. Our <laughs> Yeah, it's an act of erasure. No, no, I, I let's turn. I, I'm only one. Yeah, let's turn to uh, Kamala Harris's speech. Uh, yeah, what night was that? Now that seems like a blur. That was night three. Is that right? 
Wednesday night. Yes, which was – she followed Obama from memory. Uh, yes, she did. Good research, she yes, Stephen. Should have done that beforehand. Um, what, were your, what, what were your thoughts on her? Oh, look, to be honest, and I'll say this, I watched her speech, but I was distracted when I was doing it because I was doing work at the same time, so I didn't feel like I really got I, – I, I felt like whoever wrote her speech hasn't worked out her voice yet. Yeah, I, I sort of got that too. Uh, look, I mean, she did a really good job of like, you know, look, she she was a, an effective messenger, right? What she had to do was go out and sort of like introduce herself and reintroduce herself, reintroduce herself to Democratic voters, introduce herself to the public more broadly. She had to make the case. She had to tell her story and make the case for Joe Biden. That's a really hard thing to do, but I think she did an effective job. However, I do think the presentation of her speech was very awkward. Mm. You know, she's like in there, she's giving a speech as if she was giving a speech to a uh, packed convention hall looking left, looking right, looking into the distance. And, and that's sort of like how the stage was set up. But everything up until that point in the evening had more or less been sort of this one-on-one dynamic with the, the, the speaker and the camera and sort of the viewer. Mm. And it really sort of put distance between the viewer and Kamala which I think is something, you know, that every politician has to work to overcome. So I would have liked to have seen a different presentation of the speech. Uh, but I think given the challenge of her task at hand, she, she did that well. Uh, but the, the presentation would, you know, I'd love to see a mulligan on that. One of my favorite moments in her speech, uh, two favorite moments, I did love her um, story of self and the story of her, her parents, um, which I didn't know about in terms of them meeting at uh, Berkeley and um, being involved in the civil rights movement and all that kind of stuff. That was lovely. <laughs> but the bit I did love was when she actually name-checked the hospital that she was born in just to really shut all the yeah. birthers up. Kaiser Hospital oh, in, yeah. in Oakland, California. Like literally looking down the ca- camera and saying to everyone who watches or anyone who works at Fox News – uh, or AON, or anyone in the Trump administration, this was where I was born, you morons. Love that. Um, any other thoughts on Kamala's speech before we then uh, flip over to Joseph Biden? No, I'm out of, thought, I'm out of thoughts on that out one. Out of thoughts. Joe Biden's speech, uh, which was delivered. Uh, oh, one more thought about um, – uh, oh, no, actually, sorry. No, wait. I do have other things I want to talk to you about in terms of Kamala Harris because we actually haven't spoke to the – the point that she's been selected as the VP. Were you surprised by her not by her selection from the Biden campaign? No, I was not. Um, I think you know uh, she um, the role of vice president always has to uh, fulfill some sort of political purpose in service of of the ticket, right? And Kamala does that in a way that is more effective, maybe than the other choices that were being considered. She's broadly well-liked in uh, the Democratic Party. She uh, is a woman, which Joe Biden said that he was going to, he was going to put a woman on the ticket. She represents the breaking of a barrier and the historic nature of, of a potential Biden presidency. She, um, helps automatically helps to expand the 
the pool of voters that Joe Biden can reach. She brings some enthusiasm to the ticket. So, you know, she's not going to like deliver you a Wisconsin or a Pennsylvania just by being there. But because she's on the ticket, she can motivate voters and inspire them to turn out. So um, I think it's a good pick that makes a lot of sense. And she also guarantees two months of uh, Maya Rudolph appearing on SNL as well, which is um, a positive for a lot of people out there. That's and, true. And contrasting that to uh, Tim Kaine, uh, a native of your home state in the Commonwealth of Virginia, when he was announced, absolutely very little enthusiasm about that announcement for Hillary Hillary's campaign four years ago. And contrast that to when um, uh, Harris was announced during the or during the week or last week. Um, so much enthusiasm. Um, like it just, well, I think that was on purpose on Hillary's part, right? She wanted someone who like, it was like almost an over-engineered pick. Yeah, I know. But even still, like you can do better than that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, we're here to talk about the future. That's it. Let's the, do, well, we didn't, amazingly, we haven't spoken about the, uh, the Clintons. Maybe if we've got time at the end, we will. Um, Biden's speech. Um, for those of you who missed it, I'm just going to give you a bit of a summary of it and then I'll get some thoughts from you, um, Samuel. Um, he, I felt, uh, actually, no, sorry, I won't give you my opinions. I'll just tell you what he, what he spoke about. He talked about the economy, health and dealing with the pandemic. He made policy announcements on dealing with COVID. If he was elected on his first day, he would uh, include, um, you know, increase in rapid testing, uh, addressing a whole bunch of issues in relation to the virus itself, uh, national mandatory mask wearing. Um, he drew a strong contrast between his empathy and Trump's lack of compassion, uh, kept coming back to jobs and the dignity of work. Uh, they sort of talked about the, um, I guess, what his policy about that build back better, that investment into manufacturing and technology. Uh, talked about equal pay for women, uh, empowering labor unions, which I thought was great, uh, healthcare workers and educators, uh, addressed young people, and the issues confronting them, climate change, their first jobs, university, gun reform, and then kind of wrapped it up talking about sort of ending this chapter of America, uh, darkness for America. That's kind of the speech in a nutshell. Sam, your first thoughts on the speech. So um, the goal of his speech was definitely to make a case to voters. Uh, but I think more importantly, uh, the goal was to prove a point, that he's up for the job and that he's the right man for the moment. Uh I think, you know, what he really needed to do in this speech was to showcase a disciplined Joe Biden that could eclipse his reputation as this diamond Joe Biden or man of the people Joe Biden, this backslapper, the, the you know, this guy who could really marshal a government, a guy that you could picture being in charge. And you know, that was the most essential goal of his speech. And I think it achieved that goal. I was very happy with the central narrative of his speech, focusing on um, addressing the impacts of the uh, the pandemic um, through the a jobs or economy and health frame. Which yeah. I hope to God, I pray to God that that continues to be the narrative for the remainder of the campaign because I felt- I have so too. I that certainly the economy jobs in the economy was definitely lacking in the um in four years ago and um and he did a really good job of couching it in his personal story in a way that's just really relatable in this specific moment 
I must admit, by the end of these four days, I felt like I was, I personally knew Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, like I'm, you know, if you go back and listen to our previous conversations, I've always been skeptical of a, of a Biden candidacy and uh, I'm like pumped to vote for him now, you know, in addition to just being willing to crawl over glass to vote against Donald Trump. Well, that's good. That's good. That's good to hear. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased about that. Um, now, and I, I Sort of the, I guess some of the themes throughout the week that I kind of picked up on uh, was this sort of the forces of goodness and light versus the forces of darkness and evil, um, compassion and empathy versus this cold self selfishness, um, and turning to that cold selfishness. Let's talk about the Republican National Convention that's going to be on next week. Um, we won't spend too much time previewing um, this. Uh, Nuremberg rally, but um, what's your what what are your expectations from uh, from the uh, from the Republican convention next week? What are we going to hear? Mm. You know, I think we're going to hear a lot of grievance. I think we're going to hear a lot of false equivalencies. I think we're going to hear a lot of lies. I think we're going to hear a lot of racist rhetoric. There's certainly going to be a prevailing uh, theme of xenophobia. I think we're going to. Uh, it's going, the the event will um, end up showcasing uh, not just Donald Trump's ineptitude, but the overall ineptitude of, of the broader Republican Party around him. And there will be a lack of vision for this country. But what we will see is a presentation of an America that certainly exists but is dramatically different than what we've seen through the democratic convention and is less prevalent. Mm. I think the, what we will see, what Australian viewers especially will see is a presentation of America that again is a version of America that does exist, but is, is a, a small minority that is given outsized influence and presentation uh many of the pundits are talking about um i think it was david pluff i heard on msnbc saying that he predicted that next week's republican convention will just basically be um suggesting that hunter biden is going to be the the top of the ticket for the democratic party and that's it's going to be a a a full-on assault uh on hunter biden i thought it was interesting in the uh in the convention, the Democratic convention today, yesterday, in which uh, that they got Hunter Biden and um, his daughter to introduce him before he yeah. gave, gave his acceptance speech. In a way, sort of saying, well, you know, fine, have a crack at my children, but I'm going to put them up front and center and we're not going to be hiding from. Yeah, no, I thought that was great. Biden sort of like Joe Biden really like loves his kids and is not going to shy away from that. Um, one more thing before we wrap up uh, to talk about is the unless do you have any other thoughts on the convention before we move on? No, so that, I think that we've sort of uh, covered the the key points. The uh, United States Postal Service issue. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad, <laughs> yeah, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really bad as well. And I noticed a um, a, co- a a friend of ours, uh, Labor Victorian Labor politician, had tweeted. Uh, during the week, uh, for imploring the Democrats to not get sidetracked by the sideshow that is the issue with the mail, 
and just to focus on jobs in the economy. Uh, to which then that led to a reasonably ferocious argument between myself and my better half in this household over what um, that politician meant. I must get him on the podcast to talk about that. But um, I think my argument was this is a big structural issue for the integrity of this ballot. And it, if it is not fixed or addressed in some way before November, then the Democrats are in a world of pain to try and actually win back 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Do you agree? 100% I agree. What can be done about it though? Because uh, this is how worried I am about it. I actually read the entire Wikipedia page about how the US Postal Service works as an independent agency. The general the postmaster general is appointed by the board of directors. The board of directors, there are 11 of them. Nine of them are appointed by the president. Um, and I can't work out the accountability measure because it, it seems that this guy can do whatever the hell he likes in terms of overtime for uh, mail workers, for post uh, post people. Um, he can remove machines. He can slow the mail down. He can get pigeons to deliver the mail if he wants. He's, a, he's accountable to this board of directors, um, and I don't know who these board of directors are accountable to. Obviously the president, but the president quite clearly right now is happy with his strategy. Now, I know yeah. that Nancy Pelosi and this guy is going to be called before the House Committee next week. What can they do? Well, so there's sort of like three uh, spheres of, of influence here, right? Like obviously the, the president controls the board of governors politically and he controls the postmaster general politically. The third area of influence is, is public opinion. The American people predominantly support – like widely support the postal service this postal service is is not controversial and i don't think like anybody was even thinking about the postal service until three weeks ago that's how insane american politics has gotten now is that we're deciding whether or not not only are we deciding whether we are pro-mask or anti-mask we're now deciding are are you pro-male or anti-male oh i'd like to think i'm pro-male well what's what's interesting about this is that the uh voters who are most exercised about what's happening uh to the postal service tend to be rural Republican voters because they rely on it so much uh, as a, as an important public service. Now uh, the postal service really um, has the broad support of uh, the public and it has a very strong unionized workforce. So, you know, the postmaster general has, has effectively, um, slowed down the distribution of mail in this country by removing sorting machines, um, forcing mail workers to sort mail by hand, limiting the amount of hours that mail carriers can work. It's, it's fucked up. Mm. Um, but, uh, this workforce, he can't, I think he's sort of run up against the limit of what he can do. Right. And he's already caused significant harm, but it's not like they can like fire a bunch of postal workers or something like that because, um, you know, the, the, the labor force will push back. Now, um, because the postal service is popular, you know, it, ha- it has a lot of support, but if people start to get frustrated uh, with, you know, the ineff- ineffectiveness of the mail service, 
you know, then then it will start losing support and the you know in a potential second trump term they can go go nuts on on privatization mm. of the service i mean it's interesting you make that point about rural Republicans rely so heavily on mail, but it's not the first time that in human history that uh, people have voted against their interests or certainly taken a policy position that is against their interests. So it would be interesting to watch how Fox News wants wants to spin this one for them. It's so it is so openly corrupt, but it is not. I think like what makes it especially painful as an American, it's not like a. There's one view of corruption where it's about politicians enriching themselves and their supporters, right? I think that's sort of like the common view of, of corruption, which is, which is, you know, indefensible. Mm. And there have been incidences of that, you know, in, in American politics, right? We're not impervious to that just because we're America and, you know, we struggle with that the way any other country has, has issues with that. But by and large, typically um, we've been okay you know, somewhat okay. This instance of corruption, the postal service, the meddling of the postal service is particularly upsetting because it is a brazen and open attempt to influence the outcome of an election by a sitting president. And that is something that Americans have always thought of ourselves as being immune against, which is the tampering of the outcomes of certainly a presidential election by the candidates. Hmm. Yeah, it's a bleak. It's a bleak picture. Well, hopefully they can. Um, we can. Hey, the convention was good though. Oh yeah, it was a great time. I loved, loved it. Loved it a lot. <laughs> Next week's gonna be a hoot as well. Um, yeah. Uh, Sam, once again, thanks for your time today, tonight, this morning, coming on to chat to us. Um, I was looking at the diary for the next kind of big thing to get you back on again for our September catch up. Uh, and I'm thinking the first presidential debate, maybe we'll get to get you back on and we can do a bit of a post analysis of that. Cause that's huge. That's going to be huge. And it will be huge. Um, and also if that'll be on zoom too yeah that's that's a good point because donald trump can't do that weird stalkery thing he's got to keep his you know six feet distance like uh yeah anyway um but uh until then day safe look after yourself make sure you're registered to vote make sure you go vote when that happens how soon can you vote i don't know off the top of my head but you better believe that i will be voting as soon as possible Good man. Until then, be safe. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. 